Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. Something in doing my my version of research on uh, on my guests uh, kind of le- leads me to discovering things I may not necessarily have been completely aware of, and it seems to me as though you are probably the busiest showrunner in Australia. Uh, I'm busy. I don't know whether I'm the busiest. <laughs> yeah, I just have this job at the moment where I'm an executive producer f- across a lot of different projects for Matchbox, so... Mm. Uh, I work with creative producers and other producers and writers and directors and I'm very intimately involved in the development of the project mm. and probably less involved in the production than I come back in at uh, post-production at the cuts and um, and I'm juggling you know, six or seven of those all at once. So wow. so it is busy. Yes, it is yeah, busy. Yeah. But I'm not sure if I, you know... <laughs> How do you compare? Who, I yeah, I don't know who else, uh, uh, what other people are doing. I was just being dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> hey, welcome to the Tuesday Ramble, my friends. Welcome to Coming Up Next with Alistair Marks. I am Alistair Marks, and this is my show, Coming Up Next. And this week, in the chat cave, I welcome Tony Ayres. He's an award-winning showrunner, writer, director, and producer of television and feature films. He is the co-founder of Matchbox Pictures. His current slate includes shows like Glitch, Nowhere Boys, and The Family Law. You may also know him for shows such as The Slap and films such as Cutsnake. His body of work is prolific, to say the very least. And with that interview coming up in just a second, I can hear you thinking... Alistair, how can I contribute to coming up next and assist in the evolution of the show? Well, dear listener, to that question, I say this. Jump on iTunes or Stitcher, hit the subscribe button, rate and review the show, and I'll continue to bring you awesome guests every week on a Tuesday or whatever day it is that you happen to listen to this. And guess what? It doesn't cost you anything to do that. It's all free. And now that you've done that, and I thank you very kindly, I introduce to you my guest for this week, Tony Ayres from Matchbox Pictures. A lot of the people who tune into um, this show perhaps don't even know what a showrunner is. Is that generally what a showrunner will do? Well, uh, I think it varies from country to country um, and probably from project to project what is described as a showrunner. Mm. I think in the American model of showrunning is is much more rigid. The showrunner is a writer producer who basically tends to write the pilot mm. and can write more episodes during the series and often is actually on set a lot of the time working with the directors, directing the directors. And um, and I certainly don't do that. I, I mean, I have done a closer job to that on shows like The Slap and mm. on. Uh, Nowhere Boys, but because of my current uh, slate, I, I, I'm much more once removed. So I wouldn't even call myself a showrunner on those. I mm. would call myself an executive producer. And um, 
I think in Australia, then, you know, the idea of a showrunner is relatively recent mm. and it's kind of an evolution from the, you know, what the people used to call script producers. And it's just uh, taking that script producing role and trying to keep it more um, actively involved in the production. So, you know, being involved in the casting and in the actual production and keeping control of the amendments, but also, you know, being more uh, creatively uh, engaged across the whole process. Mm. And I guess that's what the way that we would um, describe it in Matchbox. I mean, other companies don't even like the word showrunner. They don't feel comfortable with it. Uh, We feel comfortable with it because um, we're particularly engaged in, in trying to find ways to to um, keep continuity between the writing process and the final product. Mm. Is it is it important? Do you see it as important uh, to have that development uh, as someone who's been working fairly prolifically for the last twenty years? Do you see it as a kind of crucial part of the evolution of this creative process in television? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think it's um, there's no. Um, um, surprised that uh, the evolution, the, the, you know, the the leap that television has made from being, you know, something that you know is a space between ads mm. um, to being, you know, one of the highest art forms that we've got, and certainly one of the highest art forms on screen that we have at the moment, mm. um, is connected to uh, the quality of the writing and the continuity that writers now have in being able to protect their work in in a somewhat brutal production process. Mm. I mean, in I would sort of say the television is a writer producer medium say compared to feature films which are which are much more a director's medium. Mm. Well, thank you for taking the time to sit down with me. I really appreciate your time given how busy you are. Um, oh, pleasure. Love to step back a little bit uh, and Talk about kind of where you came from and how you arrived at this point. You were born in Macau. Yeah. And you came to Australia when you were three. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so what was, it, what was it like for you to grow up in Australia um, as, I suppose, you, you grew up in Perth, yeah? I kind of grew up all around. I lived in Melbourne. I lived in Perth. Um, I, I, I mean, I kind of um, came here with, a single mother and and I have a sister and so it was predominantly the three of us when I was growing up and she lived in you know we lived in housing commission places we lived uh in the back of Chinese restaurants with the takeaway containers Mm. we had you know I had a fairly impoverished uh childhood and um uh, and my mother, you know, worked in Chinese restaurants. She worked in button factories. Um, so, so I, I kind of, I guess, my early experience of Australia was very much as a working class kid, mm. a migrant kid. And, um, but um, I, I guess I, I was pretty lucky in so far as you know, um, I was. You know, I had a very close relationship with my sister who protected me from a, a lot of those things, as did my mother. And, that you know, like we, even though we were poor, I never felt in poverty. Like I was mm-hmm. never, I never felt... Um, in lack. Yeah, hungry or, the, you know, there was always shelter, there was always food. So those basic things in, that you need in life um, were always there for me. And 
I also did well at school, like, and so school was a bit of a a haven, a safe haven from all you know the more difficult things that were happening in my private life, mm. and so. Um, so I guess um, you know I, I really am also a product of uh, the free education era, which we don't have anymore. But you know, in that sort of little golden window mm. uh, when we had the Whitlam government and then subsequent Australian governments um, provide free education. Uh, I mean, from my background, um, I would never have been able to go to university uh, except for that. I mean, I, I won a scholarship at the end of high school to go to the national undergraduate. Uh, a national undergraduate scholarship to go to the ANU, um, so I might, you know, so maybe I would have gotten there, but c- certainly I would not have been able to then go from university to art school to film school, and you know, and I, I actually went to a lot of schools before I worked out what I wanted to do, and uh, and um, and I wouldn't have been able to do that, you know, I, I would probably be something more like an academic or something mm. um, if if I hadn't been given that opportunity to really explore and work out what I wanted to do. Mm. How much of your family came over with you? Was it just you, your mum and your sister? Yeah, yeah, that, that's it. And I had an Australian stepfather, but uh, my mum was kind of estranged from him, so I didn't really um, have much to do with him until my mother's death when I was 11 and then then I ended up living with him for a few years and then then he died so I was kind of like an orphan at 14 15 wow how did you kind of navigate that or was it just that was how life was I think when you're a kid it's just how life is and uh you know oddly enough you know like I I was fortunate enough to always have people in my life who you know, again, provide me with shelter and food and and uh, the basics, and and then I went to school. So you know, like mm. your life is just your life, and then and uh, you sort of pretty much take it, uh, you know, one step at a time. Mm. I guess it's only really on uh, on reflection that you kind of realise perhaps the magnitude of the experiences. Well, I certainly, ha- you know, <laughs> you know, as a filmmaker, my uh, the kind of tr- uh, traumas of my early life certainly gave me lots of material to work with when I when I wanted to make make up stories like mm. my, my my I I made three pieces three different pieces about my mother and my sister and my early childhood years one was called um, the long ride which was actually the first short uh, piece that I made outside of film school mm. at AFTRS in Sydney and um, and that did. It was just a, a half-hour uh, television drama, but that did really well, and it won the AFI award that year for best wow. TV movie or miniseries, you know, which is kind of bizarre given it was only half an hour long. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was part of a longer anthology series called Under the Skin, produced right. by Franco Di Chiara, and um, and so I got you know I got to make that, and then I made an, an another hour long piece which took those same three characters and dealt with a different part of that story, uh, and that was called Ghost Story, and that was for an ABC, another ABC anthology series called Naked: The Stories of Men, and um, 
and that you know and those two pieces were the precursor for the third piece in that sort of trilogy uh, which was called the home song stories which was mm. a, a feature film which I wrote and directed and and that kind of really was a, a bigger exploration of the my my mother's story and you know our early childhood years in Australia mm. and that was your second that was my feature. second feature film yeah yeah uh, how old were you when you produced that Oh, I think I was in my mid forties when I produced that. It was okay. about you know, ten years ago. Yeah. Mm. Um, how how important is it for you as a storyteller to really infuse your own life and your own um, experiences into the stories that you want to tell? I think that you always have to find some point of personal connection to the stories that you tell, but. Um, you know, you know, you you can tend to run out of autobiography. Like it's, a, <laughs> I, you know, like I, I w- don't feel the need to explore uh, that that aspect of my life any anymore. Mm. Um, I think that what you look for in in trying to tell a story is something that is deeply felt, that is authentic, that feels that has, is truthful, and you know, and those things can be things that you know very personally or they can be things that you research as well and that come Mm. from other sources. But, you know, essentially you're looking for the same kind of thing, which is um, something that is both original but truthful. Mm. Yeah. I assume that Nowhere Boys is is based on your real life experiences. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, And... One thing uh, that I'm fascinated by is whether or not there's kind of an inceptive moment in creatives' lives where they where they discover this um, creativity or the kind of energetic experience of uh, creating. Do you know, do you remember um, when the first time that you entertained or told stories was? I think um, for me the... Um, the storytelling process, the creative process was actually an act of escape. You know, like I know that when I, um, you know, I had a pretty kind of crazy childhood and I know that I used to always seek refuge in fantasy, in Mm. making up stories and making up narratives. Um, Often just before I went to sleep, you know, I would dream up a world and, and, and that world became, um, you know, an escape from the world that I was in. And then um, the the particular outlet or form of that took me a, probably a long time to figure out because I started out creatively being a short story writer, and that that was my kind of you know great love, and and in some ways it still is. Like I, I didn't never never had enough attention or focus to do a, a, a to think about a novel, but I used to write mm. short stories when I was at university. I and I was studying literature and philosophy. I used to write short stories in my spare time, and I found it enormously rewarding and engaging and uh, and then and, a lot, and the source of a lot a lot of um my understanding of the world and some sometimes those stories were autobiographical sometimes they were fictional often they were embedded in something that you know like a slightly once removed version of myself or yeah. my situation or my experience you know it was a it was you know, so there was a kind of um, there's probably a um, therapeutic element to it that was like trying to understand things that troubled me, and and it's st- you know, it still still is uh, to some extent. You know, like 
you know, you're constantly, it's like you're drawn to sores or wounds or things that kind of stay with you. Mm. And then you try to process and understand them. And, and part of me doing that was um, through um, a kind of creative reimagining. And, and sometimes, you know, it, you know, it's about, um, you know, often the more you you are perplexed by something, the more mm. you're drawn to thinking about it, or you know, you find yourself troubled by it. Um, the more you kind of give life to a world where you where you try try to reimagine it, and, mm. and that that's often where where things start for me. Mm. That's amazing. Um, so you you kind of come at it from this point of complete kind of imagination but kind of being filtered or being washed through your life filters i suppose yeah i I think that that's probably a good way of of summing it up what 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 i do is i sort of tackle a problem and 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 of course you know the 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 thing that you also have to be aware of and you know the more i do the more and the the more i realize is that you know something some stories should you know every story has its form Mm. something should sometimes something should be um um, a conversation. Sometimes it could be a diary entry. Sometimes it could be um, a short film or a short story. Sometimes it's a movie. Sometimes it's a TV series. And in a way, you've you've got to make a judgment call on what that uh, that observation, that that grain of truth, that uh, which then spins into a narrative, what that actually is. Because sometimes, you know, it's really no no more than you know and. I, and that's all about audience. Mm. You know, so sometimes that observation is really no more than an observation that you should make at a dinner party, mm. for instance. <laughs> and sometimes it's actually something which you think, wow, that's actually really affects me and is profound. And, and then that spins out into something that like a whole TV series or, a, mm. or a, um, um, you know, or a movie. And, you know, you know so it, it, it is a judgment call on, you know, what, what those you know, the, the right form for the idea. Mm. You mentioned before that you did a lot of studies. You went to uh, Swinburne, Univers- well, formerly Swinburne, now VCA, VCA yes. but there's also a Swinburne again. Yes, yes. Uh, I went to the new Swinburne. Okay, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Finished yes. about 10 years ago. Um, what was your experience like at film school and kind of really starting to nurture and foster this um, storytelling passion that you have? I think the great thing about film schools are the other students there, and um, you know you, you're going to learn what you learn, and you know teachers vary and differ, and but and you get an opportunity to make something, and that gives you a bit of a calling card into the industry. Um, but the the real lasting thing is the is the kind of uh, kindred spirits you meet, mm. and and the collaborative collaborators you have for the future for instance um a close friend of mine from film school when i went to aftrs and did a a one-year writing postgraduate which kind of pretty much um set me off in the direction that that i'm still on in a way um was a woman called belinda chaco and you know and then and over the years belinda and i have just had this very rewarding ongoing creative relationship where you know, we've gone from both being involved in the same anthology series, Under the Skin, to um, 
but uh, you know, like Michael McMahon and and I were developed and produced her feature film Lou. She wrote a telly movie that I directed called Saved. She worked on Old School and then uh, uh, has recently worked on Barracuda and and now we're working on a number of projects together. So mm. so you know, like that's a that's a long history. Yeah, what an amazing relationship to kind of have fostered through. You guys must have been through a lot of. Uh a lot of highs and lows together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, were there any um, memorable teachers or moments that you can remember at film school where you felt very inspired to continue pursuing this? I think the turning point for me was um, a teacher I had at AFTRS. Uh, I was in the writing department. And and to be honest, um, you know, like I, I went from university where I studied philosophy and literature and um, I was probably, you know, because I studied very intensely in high school, you know, like a, I was probably a bit burnt out by the time I got to, I didn't take a gap year. By the time I got to university, I was a little bit over it, over studying. So I, I did it for a couple of years and then I went to uh, art school and I did silkscreen printing. And, oh, wow. Uh, and, um, <laughs> That's quite a left turn. I know. I, and um, But I was just kind of kicking the tyres. I was sort mm. of looking at, you know, like I knew I wanted to do something creative. I was always writing through that period. And, and when, even at art school, I was always putting words in my pictures. So I always thought, oh, pictures, words, maybe film, you know. And then I went to uh, Swimber slash VCA. And, mm. and I, you know, I had a year there and I, I tried it out and I kind of liked it. But I wasn't, you know, I, you know it, was, it was a very generalist course. So I wasn't mm. sure where I wanted to specialise. I knew that writing was still at the centre of the, my interests. And so then I finished, uh, um, uh, I went to AFTRS and focused on writing for a year. It was the first time I'd really given writing a go. Mm. And I was probably in, by that stage, I was about 27. And um, and it was, uh, you know, I, I really didn't know. And the person who probably turned it all around for me was a teacher called Barbara Mazel, who who is a dear friend and who subsequently, you know, I've worked with in other forms as a script editor or with her as a commissioning editor, you know, like, we've, again, we've had a long history. Mm. And she said something very simple, which is, you can do this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> really, really simple. And it was because I think the thing about writing is it's one of the scariest things because when you start out anyway, you just don't know whether you can do it or not. You know, you want to do it, but you, you just need to be told that actually you have talent and that that mm. is something you can do. And uh, and that that was probably the greatest gift that she ever that I was given in an educational institution, the confidence to to give it a go. And that's how it all started for me. Mm. Well, it's, it's extraordinarily similar to an experience I had yeah. uh, when I was at film school. I was uh, under the mentorship of um, Richard Franklin um, fantastic yeah I've, and I was so uh, lucky as a 21 22 year old to have someone like him uh, really encouraging me and I remember a similar thing feeling like you know I'd been writing stories my grandfather's a writer um, he would always encourage me to write short stories and that sort of thing growing up and when I turned to script writing, probably started writing scripts 19, 20. Uh, and I wrote something when I was in my second year at film school. And Richard 
brought me into his office to give me feedback and he just turned to me and he said, I'm going to swear here, he said, fuck, you can write. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool. Wow, because yeah. I'd never had any feedback really on my yeah. ability to write or not be able to write up to that point. And it was a really nice, encouraging kind of arm around the shoulder saying, yeah, you know, you're doing well. So I think sometimes that's all you need and that and because so much of writing is is actually about the things that stop you from writing. Mm. You know, so much of the process is around, you know, why you shouldn't write and the, and the procrastination because it's in, an internal process mm. um, that you, you just need enough on your side to convince you to actually do it. Mm. It's also a very exposing and vulnerable creative yes. process. Yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, yeah, I, I did a, an interview with uh, Sam Johnson many, many, uh, many episodes ago and he made a comment about how actors are just the interpreters. It's the writers that are the real creators uh, on one level. I don't entirely agree with that sentiment, but there's something in that where as a, as a writer, you are kind of the first point of contact of the creative mm-hmm. process. Well, I, th- I think that um, writing is the origin point of everything, mm. in, especially in television and film, you know, um, if you die, I, I do believe that it's very hard to make something good from a bad. You can't make something good from a bad script, mm. and um, I mean, I think you can make something bad from a good script, but, <laughs> but I don't think you know. Like, if it's if the script does not work, then um, there's just a limit to what you can do to mm. repair it, and um, I think that uh, you know certainly for me. Um, Write, writing is the centre of virtually everything I do mm. as a producer, as a director. You know, like it's, it's, it is the kind of writerly sensibility within me that actually um, fuels what, what, um, what skills I have. Mm. Something that I was quite fascinated by was that your way into uh, working professionally in the industry was through writing. Um, but also through, you're quite a multifaceted creative in the sense that you have quite a prolific history as a writer, but also as a director and also as a producer and not only in just uh, scripted drama, also reality TV and, um, and documentary and... I'm not so much involved in reality. That's a part of the company that, that I'm not involved in. But mm. um, certainly documentary was a, a, a big part of my early career. Like I sort of, straight after film school really, I, I sort of started moving into documentary uh, as a director, which was just bizarre because I had no <laughs> training in it whatsoever. I just had an opportunity that kind of came out, out of nowhere virtually. And so I got to do it and, um, you know, I was very... Neurotic about doing it because I felt like a total fraud. Yeah, and and I and because I hadn't trained in any way as a documentary as a writer, I I had some kind of training. I had some kind of vocabulary of how to talk about things. And uh, but as a as a director, I, I really had no no formal training. Mm. And um and so I kind of stumbled my way around it. But you know, I, I kept directing short films and I kept directing uh, documentaries and um. And, you know, really, you know, I, I always thought of myself back then as a writer who directs, and I, in some ways I still do. And um, what 
was extraordinary was that, that all of those pieces uh, sort of had a life of some kind, either mm. in festivals or they all, you know, like everything seemed to win something or do do well. Wow. And I seemed to get through every experience without being called for being a fraud, <laughs> which I thought was the, the most extraordinary thing. Yeah. But, I, you know, like I just kept getting through one experience after another and... Um, and of course you learn on the job. So, you know, like uh, the more I did, the better I got, the more confident I got about knowing what I was doing and knowing what my strengths and weaknesses are, are as a director. And um, and so, yeah, no, I, I was given plenty of opportunities. They were kind of sort of, you know, that they were within a certain world, a certainly marginal world, you know, things like mm. Eat Carpet. I made, you know, three short films oh, for wow. Eat Carpet. <laughs> I made, you know, a short film for the ABC. I made documentaries for Film Australia. So that they weren't sort of like, you know, mainstream commercial TV or, mm. or big box office films or anything like that. They were very much uh, um, from a marginal place. And uh, speaking with a marginal voice, a lot of the early work that I was doing was certainly around identity and my identity being gay and being Chinese and, and then being gay and Chinese, mm. you know, like, you know, so I, I was kind of exploring those I, ideas and, you know, I was pretty lucky because at that point in history, there were, you know, there were organisations that wanted to hear those voices and, mm. and uh, you know, so I was very well supported by the Australian Film Commission, by... Uh, um, Film Australia by um, SBS and by the ABC. Like you know, you know, I, uh, I had quite a, you know, somehow I made a career out of all those things. And and, in, and you know, in between those th- those, I, I also edited books and wrote plays. And you know, like I had a mm. multi-stranded career, which sort of suited me. Yeah, that sounds quite extraordinary. I think it, you know that there, there was more opportunity then back then for someone coming from my position I, mm. I think it is tougher now and um and i also you know i you know i was a little bit adhd or whatever it was i, I sort of tend to flip from one thing to the other mm. and um and i kind of like you know and yet everything fed on the thing before it in somehow in some shape or form and and everything you do gives you you know uh, teaches you something else about the next thing you do, mm. and um, even though it may not be, uh, um, you know, like absolutely obvious how one thing leads to another, but but eventually it does. You know, some you know loops around. Yeah, something. yeah. You just kind of trust that things will. I don't want to say work out, but something that kind of strikes me as you're talking about that is this philosophy of just taking action just saying yes and then figuring out how yeah kind of on the <laughs> job less, like yeah, you yeah, say yeah more or less but also you know um you acquire skills as you go along it's yeah. really it's really really simple you know you know you, uh, experience is useful mm. and how how sort of important do you see it as to really go head first into opportunities when they come your way um even if you do have that kind of fraudulent uh, underpinning, which is really just self-doubt, but yeah. um, certainly it, it would appear as though you've created an amazing career for yourself with this kind of foundation of saying yes. And then working out how to do it. Um, yeah, pretty much so. I, I mean, eventually, you know, you have to be careful what you wish for because yeah, right. <laughs> you end up being... 
being crazily busy. And, you know, one of my things now that I'm trying to work out is how to pull back from doing all the different things I do mm. and, then, and then kind of prioritizing and valuing, uh, you know, the couple of key things that I'm doing. And, um, and that, you know, that, that becomes a different, a different set of questions, but, um, um, you know, I, I feel very lucky to have done those things, everything that I've done. And I love all the projects I'm working on. And, and, and so the next point for me is to sort of then um, curate that a little bit more closely so mm. that I don't um, feel so tired all the time. It's <laughs> <laughs> so not racing around all the time. Yeah, a lot of uh, lunch meetings and coffee meetings and dinner meetings and it's midnight also, It's Skype also sessions. really to do the particular things that you do to the to the best of your ability yeah and, you know when you're spread too thin it's very hard to to do that you know so so i'm sort of i'm, I'm a little bit betwixt and between at the moment yeah when did you was was creating uh, a production company that would become completely self-sufficient and beyond that be able to facilitate not only the projects that you wanted to make but that you would be able to help foster new talent and turn over you know, as many projects as you are now, was that something that you always wanted to do? Was that kind of a big picture dream? To be honest, it was never a specific goal or vision. It was always, um, you know, uh, when Michael McMahon and I had a company called Big and Little Films, we were doing very well. We'd made Bogan Pride, that uh, musical comedy series mm. of Rebel Wilson. We'd made Saved. We made Home Song Stories with Liz Watts from Porchlight. You know, so we, you know, we had a quite a good, you know, we were doing the anatomy series of documentaries for the ABC, you know, we, and we, you know, we had a, you know, really interesting business making documentaries and movies Mm. and, um, and just with some forays into TV. But at the time, I, you know, I think this was about 2007, I could see, you know, both Michael and I felt that the on the cusp of a change in the way things needed to happen to, mm. to actually be a sustainable business because, you know, and just because we noticed that all of our friends who were other producers had pretty much the same issues as us, which is a boom and bust cycle, you know, like when you're in production, you're way too busy to keep developing so that, you know, um, so there are always significant gaps in between projects mm. and then, you, you know, in those gaps you go into debt and then, then you get uh, production up and then you pay off your debt so that by the time the production ends, you're back in debt again. <laughs> you know, like, it, you know, it felt like a roller coaster and it was a roller coaster we were all on. And um, I just remember talking to, um, you know, being at a uh, screen producers conference with Penny Chapman and Helen Bowden and who were both friends and pretty much on the same roller coaster. And, and we just sort of said, well, what if we just hitched our... our wagons together and see, and see whether that whether that would change things and mm. change the momentum of things and um you know so so um and then uh we did that and we started making movements towards that and then at the same time the government agency started seeing the need for bigger companies mm. and so they were giving people seed money to to explore those possibilities and a whole bunch of companies came from that you know Companies like Essential and CJZ and uh, Goalpost, um, you know, really great kind of slightly bigger companies, and um, uh, and we became one of them. And uh, and 
so it was no more than you know really uh, you know it wasn't an ambition to make matchbox the matchbox that it is today mm. it was really just to see what would happen next and um and then you know we were very fortunate because NBC Universal were looking to acquire a company in Australia and we fitted exactly what they were looking for which was a bunch of experienced people but not a, a super big company mm. and um you know which you know took a couple of years to sort of sort out the deal but we eventually sorted something out and um and they invested in us and the company just took off from there you know and uh so I'm really proud of the company that we have today. I do feel like it, um, you know, in terms of um, the kind of uh, environment that I wanted, wanted to be in, uh, it's absolutely that. I think it's mm. a company of, that, you know, acts ethically. I think we make uh, a diversity of work. I think we make work for the right reasons. I think we have great... Uh, uh, creative people involved in the company and plus a, a whole um, stream in the company of uh, talent development. Uh, you know, we are quite as, you know, we've, we've grown into one of the biggest companies in the country mm. very quickly. And, um, and you know, all of those things are things to be proud of. Um, and, um, you know, and I, I also think that it's a company that puts creativity at the at the heart of its endeavor you mm. know like it's all about trying to get the resources onto the screen it's all about trying to make the best possible work that you can make for whoever you're making it for so um all you know all of those things i think are the right things um for you know in terms of where i want to be in the world mm. it's incredibly inspiring to kind of be a third party watching what you have created um, collectively here and to see the way and the, f the philosophy with which you approach film and television creation. It's really... I th yeah, I, I do feel as though... I mean, I mean, a lot has got to do with, it, you know, it's a, it comes from the top. We have a phenomenal um, managing director, Chris Oliver Taylor, who came from the ABC and... And uh, he leads the company with, mm. you know, with an ability to somehow juggle the business side of things with the creative side of things and uh, keep everything afloat somehow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, you know, and people work very hard here. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, we are uh, a small industry, you know, in a... Uh, in a small market mm. and we're very aware of that but i think that you know we try to make the best of of it but i think also think that well, there's a lot of creative talent here both in writing and directing and acting you know and and um you know we we try to make the best of of that and i, I and that's something i'm very proud of mm. is it quite gratifying for you to be able to help um, with shows like, say, The Family Law, for example, to be able to get those off the ground and see this next generation of uh, creatives uh, coming up. Yeah, I, I, do, I do think that you have to give back. And, you know, that's always, you know, like when I was in, in an earlier part of my career, I was fortunate enough to be working with people who 
who place their trust in me and, mm. and you know and we do the same for uh you know people now so and also re- really it's you know it's just the basics of business if you don't have another generation you don't have a business in the future yeah. <laughs> you've got to kind of find ways for people to to grow and develop and you know and one certainly one of the one of the parts of this company which i'm proudest of is the way that we do really try to give people career paths mm. through the company and into sort of area you know so some some people who people who've worked here have gone on to, you know to to either become writers or producers you know um to work in development internationally to you know like there's, there's you know or to work in production mm. you know like there, there, there's a whole string of uh people who've come through the company who in more junior um uh positions who who are now kind of find you know finding su- successful careers for themselves and mm. um I think yeah, I, th- I think that that's a natural function. I, I, you know, we're not the only company that does that. I think every company um, does that in some way, in its own way. Mm. As you say, I guess it's smart business sense. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And you, you know, uh, I, I, I think that that has been one of the successful things about trying to make bigger companies that mm. the, you know, that <coughs> Screen Australia has has adopted. I think it has been successful. Mm. Success is an interesting term um, and one that I keenly and and uh, curiously like to explore on this show um, because I think especially in the entertainment industry, there's, there is certainly an idea that success means that you've gone to Hollywood and made uh, feature films and you're a world-renowned filmmaker. Um, but, of course, success is going to mean different things for different people um, and... I know that certainly at my in, within my career, I've felt tremendous amounts of success through different kind of things that I've done. I mean, doing this podcast, for example, um, is a success for me. How do you see, as someone who has been part of this um, amazing experience, how do you kind of define and see success? I think that uh, you have to value and celebrate all the things that you do when, whenever you get to make something that that's pretty um a significant thing because it's it's hard to make things when people watch it and are affected and moved by it then the, I, I think that that's kind of successful i mean i think you know there are <coughs> conventional standards by which you we judge our success mm. <coughs> and you can't really be a, you know unaffected by that you know we all kind of have our oscar speeches in our heads you know like you know that's <laughs> And idle moments, but I also <clears throat> I also think that we can make ourselves very unhappy, and by trying to not value the things that we do, you know, the, the things that that are, and we, you know, we, I think it's important to always stop and recognize, yes, that was a great thing that you did, whether it's mm. you know, you know, getting a draft of something that you love written, or you know, find you know, um, I think that all of those things are kind of little wins. For me, success is making something that I feel really proud of and that people see, you know, that affects people because you make things for people to see, you know, mm. like, you know, this is a, an, an art form. Well, no art form exists outside of its audience, like, you know, and um, and if you can make something that people see that can affect people and, uh, and in somehow... Um, 
do some, you know, social good in some way, then I think that's a success. I mean, mm. I think, um, you know, weirdly enough, you know, for me, some of the most successful things I've done have been also the least recognised things I've done, uh, you know, and, uh, and yet, you know, they might have been, you know, like I made a documentary called China Dolls many years ago about my experience of being gay and Chinese and, and just a, a few people saw it, not very many people saw it, and, but a few people who saw it and um, it reflected their experience as well. It, it, it talked about their ex, experience of racism in the gay scene. It talked about, um, you know, their self-image. It talked about, mm. you know, all kinds of cultural things that have never been discussed and named for them before. And uh, and it taught, and they appreciated that, and, and you know, and I think that's a kind of success ultimately. You know, you've got, I think, it's a very dis, you know, distorted world we're in. You know, because it's so much about capitalism and money and fame and success, and you know, you need movie stars to make big movies, and mm. you, you're a part of a big business, and all of that sort of stuff. And <clears throat> you know, yes, we are all in that you know, in somehow engaged or involved in that system because um, you need money to make what you do, you know, mm-hmm. you know, to pay people to make what you do. Uh, and so you have to have some sort of relationship to it. But you also have to have a relationship that still holds at its centre your personal human values, mm. you know. And, uh, and that's, a, that's the trickiest thing to juggle. I think it is tricky to juggle juggle to remind yourself constantly that you know the reason that you're in this business is to communicate and affect people mm. and that there are many ways of doing that and you don't need a um you know a blockbuster movie in hollywood to do that you might be able to find other ways of doing that mm. what are some of the values that you kind of hold strong i, I think Early on, I, you know, I did a lot of personal stuff and you know identity stuff, and and um, and it was about you know who I who I was, and then I kind of realised that <clears throat> no one else was doing that stuff, or hardly anyone was doing it, and uh, you know later in my career, sort of representation has become a bigger and bigger issue for me, mm. uh, just because I sort of feel like I'm in a position now where you know, uh, to make things happen more. Um, you know, obviously I can't make everything I wanted to happen happen, but, you know, like I can, you know, I, I'm in a better negotiating position now to start things off. And um, and so, you know, I, I will always try to take on things where I feel like, well, that hasn't been said and that those people have not been heard and, though, you know, you know, for, for the say, sake of, uh, you know, not just for a bigger political reason, but be- actually because those are worlds that we don't know and mm. we haven't seen before. And actually, you know, like you know, one of the one of the buzzwords at the moment, like every every few years, there's a new buzzword within our <laughs> business, and one of the buzzwords at the moment is fresh. Yeah, you know, it's like the stalest word around, fresh. <laughs> Ironically, and um, and but you know, the truth is, when you take a story, you know, because there's only a certain number of stories, and they can only be recycled in certain ways you take a story and you put it in a different world that actually makes it fresh it makes Mm. it something else and so 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 both at a creative level i think that you know wow it's interesting to see these worlds that you don't know anything about and then kind of at a political level you know these are voices who have had no voice and having grown up never seeing myself 
you know, not and feeling kind of invisible mm. um, and, and sort of also understanding the personal cost of that. I feel like, well, you know, now that I have access to the mechanisms which can make uh, us more visible, mm. the marginal people more visible, I feel the responsibility to try to do that. So things like the family law absolutely fit into that ambit. Uh, I'm executive producing a feature film called Ali's Wedding, and mm. you know, which is Australia's first all-Muslim rom-com. Assam is a friend of mine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that fits into that ambit. You know, like Barracuda uh, does that. Um, you know, and and another way Wanted does that because you know, for, for it's a Channel Seven show, so it's a mainstream commercial show which appeals to a wide audience. Um, which has two female characters at the centre who don't talk about men. Mm. You know, well, <laughs> they talk about how to get away from men. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, you know. And but I think that that's actually, uh, you know, that actually breaks new ground in a way, which is still accessible for people. Where, which is still, you know, in ways people can connect to the to mm. those stories because, um, because you know you you know the people who are making that show have sufficient have great craft skills mm. and, you know, can make a story entertaining and engaging and funny and exciting and all of those things, you know. So, so you know, like I, if I'm going to do something now and given that, you know, there's always a limit to what you can do, I'm interested in doing something for a purpose. You mm. know, the, the, I guess I'm not that interested in uh, something unless I can see that purpose. Yeah. Well, the art, in inverted commas, does not exist in a vacuum. Uh, and I think that's kind of what you're saying, is you, you, you're you wanting to make something that's accessible and that's engaging for people and stories that might actually affect either a personal change or a perhaps bigger picture change. Or to be part of a cultural conversation. Yeah. You know, to be a part of a cultural conversation about the kind of issues that are actually important to a society. I mean, I also feel like in Australia in particular, you know, we're a government sub- subsidised industry. Yeah. And one of, you know, one of the, you know, the film industry is always kind of talking to go- telling government, you know, you have to fund us because, you know, for cultural reasons. And and I sort of think, well, unless you give back to the culture, mm. you know, you know, you don't have a very strong argument for why the government should fund you. <laughs> yeah. You know, like you, you ne- do need to be part of a, some kind of cultural conversation. Mm. And, you know, there are two parts of that, you know, part uh, there, there is um, relevance. You do have to ha- find a way to be relevant. And then there is content, you know, mm. what you're actually saying. And those two things are both important i think sometimes if you, you can have one which makes you very marginal or you can have the other which makes you very mainstream but with nothing to say mm. you know? so, so for me it's those two those they're the two pillars of what i what i'm interested in mm. well that seems like an amazing uh, kind of way to round out what's been a great conversation um i really really appreciate your time tony thank you so much for doing this I have one question that I ask everyone at the end of the show, and the question is, what makes you silly? <laughs> I default to silly. <laughs> I just, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just kind of serious when the microphone's on, but the rest of the time I'm silly. Yeah, cool. Thank you so much, Tony. <laughs>